0: You're listening to Sunday on the Commons, a podcast featuring sermons from the United Congregational Church in Little Compton, Rhode Island. Who is Jesus? Albert Schweitzer famously remarked that looking for Jesus is like looking down a well. You see only your own reflection. That Jesus remains a stranger and an enigma. There will never be one answer to this question. But there are some things we do know about him that can help us understand his purpose and ministry. Last Sunday, the Reverend Dr. Richard Floyd explored some of them with us, along with what they might mean for those who follow him. Let's listen.
1: First reading is 2 Kings, verses 2, chapters 1 and 2, and 6 to 14. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elijah were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me, As I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elisha ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped, grasped his own clothes, and tore them into pieces. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Here ends the first reading.
2: According to St. Luke chapter 9, beginning at the 51st verse. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James, And John saw it, they said to him, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village, and as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another Jesus said, Follow me. But the man said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here ends the lesson. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Who is Jesus? I don't know if you knew that Albert Schweitzer, in addition to everything, all his other accomplishments, missionary, doctor, and world-famous organist, was also a first-rate theologian and wrote a very important book in the first part of the 20th century in which he had reviewed all the scholarship uh, about Jesus. Uh, was called His book was called The Search for the Historical Jesus. And in it, he had a famous quote, Uh, In answer to the question, who is Jesus? He said, looking for Jesus is like looking down a well. You see only your own reflection, that Jesus remains a stranger and an enigma. There will never be one answer to this question. But there are things we do know about Jesus that can help us understand his person his purpose, and his ministry. And the very first thing we need to know about him is that he was a Jew. Often forgotten, but very important. And the second thing we need to know about him was he was a poor Jew. How do we know this? According to the law of Israel, when you had a child, you would go to the temple and you would sacrifice an animal. And there was a big long list of what you should sacrifice, starting with a ram. That's the rich people going all the way down to a pigeon. Jesus' mom and dad took him for dedication at the temple. It was a pigeon. So we know that much about him. He was a poor Jew in a country long occupied by an imperial foreign power, the Roman Empire, the greatest empire of all time in the known world at that time which is to say he was a powerless, disinherited person who knew the daily indignity of living under the fear of political violence, state-sponsored violence. Jesus was not a citizen of his own country. Paul was a Roman citizen. Remember two weeks ago or maybe three weeks ago, that story I talked about Paul and Silas in Philippi and how they were beaten for being Jews, well, the next chapter, Paul complains and says, I'm a Roman citizen, and I, I want to well, I write as a citizen for recourse. But Jesus had no such power. If a Roman soldier pushed him into a ditch or spat at him, there was nothing he could do about it. And this powerlessness profoundly shaped him. I'm reading a book called Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. It was written in 1949, which happens to be the year I was born. And it came out right before the Civil Rights Movement got moving in the 1950s. Thurman, a black man, was the dean of Marsh Chapel at Boston University. He was one of the influences on Martin Luther King, who did his PhD at Boston University. In Thurman's book, he draws comparisons between the socio political world that Jesus grew up in and the American South of his day, which was during the Jim Crow era. In both cases, powerful majorities disinherited powerless minorities through fear and the threat of violence. The regular lynchings in Howard Thurman's day and the regular crucifixions of Jesus' day were both designed to instill terror in the disinherited minority and keep them in their place. Now, Judaism, then as now, was not monolithic. There were a number of groups in it. And the different groups all had different strategies to cope with the oppression of Rome. The Sadducees controlled the temple, and they were collaborators, basically, to hold on to their power. Romans granted them a certain amount of power, so they sold their souls to run the temple. The Pharisees, who you know from all the interactions Jesus had with them, despised the Romans, and became scrupulous keepers of the law of Israel and stuck to themselves. The Essenes, which you may not know much about, were an ascetic sect. That's very hard to say. An ascetic sect that abandoned society altogether and moved into an isolated community in the desert on the edge of the Dead Sea. They're the people from which we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, that were found in 1948-49, just about the same time Thurman was writing his book. And then there was the Zealots. The Zealots believed they could mount an armed insurrection against the Romans. That had been tried several times before, and let's just say it hadn't gone well for the insurrectionists. So these various Jewish groups in Jesus' day all had strategies for living under Roman occupation and for dealing with the daily indignities of being a disinherited minority. And that brings us to Jesus. What was his strategy for dealing with the Romans? Jesus chose another way altogether, the way of love. He admonished his followers to love your enemies, and they had enemies. I always say to people, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for them. He didn't say you wouldn't have any. They had enemies, the Romans were their enemies, others were their enemies. The root of this love for Jesus was the love that God had for all people. Jesus was reflecting the love of the one he called Father for all people without distinction. And Jesus also knew that the opposite of love, hate, damages the hater, damages the hater's soul and spirit and integrity. So Jesus's way, unlike all the other groups, was a way of love, and it was a way of humility. He knew that humility cannot be humiliated. So his stance was one of passive resistance to the Romans. They could make him do things, but they couldn't make him hate them. And he, he wouldn't let them rob him of his dignity as a human being. So a lot of the things he said in the light of this start making sense, if you think about it. Remember how he said, If someone strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other cheek to strike. That was most likely not a hypothetical case. A Roman soldier could slap a Jew with impunity. Remember how Jesus said, You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. Remember how Jesus said, If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile, also not a hypothetical. This was nonviolent passive resistance. It was a way of asserting dignity in the face of oppression, because a Roman soldier could, by law, force anyone to carry their burden for one mile. That was their power. But to go a second mile voluntarily was an act of resistance that morally challenged their authority over you. Howard Thurman understood that Jesus had a special meaning for the disinherited, for anybody with their backs against the wall. Thurman had learned the Bible by reading it out loud to his grandmother, who was born a slave and was never taught to read. One day Howard asked her why she never read from the letters of Paul. She said, the slave owners wouldn't let black preachers preach to them, but would bring in white preachers and the white preachers it was with the white preachers it was always paul telling them slaves obey your masters she said that's why i don't want to hear from paul i just don't want to hear from paul but she also told them that the slaves would have secret church meetings in the middle of the night and the black preachers would come in and they they would preach to them you are not a slave you are not that bad word they call you you are a child of god God loves you. Imagine how powerful that message would have been to a slave to hear that despite their powerlessness in the face of this white supremacy, they had dignity as human beings. They were equal in the eyes of God, if not in the institutions of society. Now, Jesus, of course, is not only for the disinherited, the powerless and the poor, but he has a special affinity for them because he was one of them. But Jesus also loved his enemies. He loved the Romans and the Samaritans, not just the poor and downtrodden. And in today's reading, we are reminded of another startling fact about Jesus that I kind of knew, but really hit me hard this week when I was reading this passage, which is he was homeless. He was a homeless man. For the three years of his itinerant ministry, he didn't have a home today's reading, as they were going the, along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So where did he live? Well, probably in the out of doors, a good deal of the time, but also he relied on the hospitality of disciples and strangers, friends like Mary and Mar- Martha and Martha and Lazarus. And uh, remember the story about Zacchaeus inviting him to dinner? He was a tax collector, a Roman collaborator. So Jesus was saying to this would-be follower, you want to follow me? Follow me. Fine. But my itinerant ministry is not easy. I am homeless. And if you follow me, you will be too. And that is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship. And I have always thought that today's passage was about the difficulty of following Jesus how he sets the bar for discipleship is just so very, very high. And I, I still think that's part of it. But there's something more that Luke is telling us in this gospel. Yes, Jesus is telling them there's an urgency to following him. He receives in this passage several requests for putting off following him. One of his would-be followers said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another would-be follower said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It seems harsh, doesn't it? It does to me. The fact is, none of these requests were unreasonable. But Jesus was stressing the urgency of his purpose and mission. Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. It said that twice. And that's a phrase in Luke which is not necessarily geographical, it's more theological. It means Jesus is going to meet his destiny uh, in Jerusalem. As Jesus reminded them again and again, Jerusalem is where the prophets go to die. So I don't think this passage is primarily about discipleship, I think it's more about Jesus' own mission and purpose in living out the love of God. And one of the reasons I think that is because in the rest of Luke's Gospel, Luke doesn't show a particularly high regard for the disciples. They never quite get who Jesus is. For example, in today's story, Jesus sends disciples ahead to a Samaritan town to seek a place to stay, but the Samaritans deny them hospitality. I need to say a word about the Samaritans. So the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews and vice versa, even though they were kind of cousins. The Samaritans had intermarried with the local people from Canaan. They didn't worship at the temple. They worshiped at Mount Gerizim. They had, their law was slightly different. They had that particular kind of hatred that only estranged family members can have. And it's interesting that Jesus chose to go to Sam- through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. And actually, that is the shortest line, the shortest point between two points is a straight line. You can get to Jerusalem from Galilee by not going through Samaria, just like you can get to New York City from Rhode Island by not going through Connecticut. But it's not the best way to go, let's put it that way. So, but Jesus is confident. He sends these, go, go into a village, say, Jesus is coming. And we need some hospitality. And they said, no. Two other stories, in the Gospels about Samaritans that you know. One is the woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well. It's startling that Jesus would be talking, well, first to a woman at all, and then a Samaritan woman. And the second story is that really well-known story about the road to Jericho and the so-called good Samaritan. And the, the people often miss the point of that story, which is all about, well, this guy did good, you know, he did good deeds. Well, yeah, he did good deeds, but he was also... The other people that walked by were the official religious people of the day, and he was the hated, hated enemy. Um, so the Samaritans were um, hostile territory. Well, Jesus again is acting out his love for the other, for the stranger, for the different, for the enemy. All right, so these disciples, James and John, who are you know the kind of big up in the hierarchy of disciples they say, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume these wicked Samaritans? And um, Jesus rebuked them. They didn't understand Jesus' way of love and humility. They thought, well, if you recall, James and John were the ones that went up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, just a few chapters earlier, where Elijah and Moses and Jesus appear transfigured. And so... They knew Elijah famously had called down fire on the priests of Baal. And so they saw, well, Jesus is like Elijah. He can ask God to scorch these people and God will do it. But So they didn't, they didn't get it. And another story of Luke that you know, on the road, road to Emmaus after the crucifixion, and Jesus walked with several disciples and they didn't recognize him, even though he pretty much spelled out what was going on and who he was. So Luke's depiction of Jesus' disciples is pretty uniformly negative. They were pretty much clueless, didn't really know what Jesus was doing. But when Jesus set his face to Jerusalem to directly confront the power of his Roman oppressors, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that people who said the kinds of things he said and did the kinds of things he did ended up on a Roman cross. So Jesus set his face to Jerusalem as the final act of his resistance to Roman power and the final act in his ministry. And remember I said the first thing we need to know about Jesus was that he was a Jew? To unmoor Jesus from his Jewish identity is to misunderstand who he was and what he was doing. Jesus saw all the strategies of the various groups I described as a betrayal of the faith of Israel. He knew his Bible very well, and he knew that Israel the centuries had been unfaithful and disobedient to God. Jesus now himself in his own person was going to embody the faithfulness and obedience to God that Israel had been ina- unable to do. That is why he picked 12 disciples to mirror the 12 tribes of Israel. That is why he began his ministry with 40 days in the wilderness to mirror the 40 years of wandering by the Israelites before they entered the promised land. And I need to say a word about Elijah's mantle. A mantle is a cloak. In today's first reading, Elijah rolls up his mantle and strikes the water of the river Jordan, and it parts. Does that remind you of any other story in the Old Testament? Just as Moses did with his staff in the Red Sea. Elijah's mantle is a symbol of his power as a prophet. And when he is taken up to heaven with the chariots of fire, yes, that's where the name of the movie comes from, his mantle falls and is taken up by Elisha, his protege and successor, the prophet of Israel. And there is a subtle reference to this in today's gospel reading. When Elijah calls Elisha to be his disciple and follow him, Elisha asks permission from Elijah to visit his family to say goodbye. And Elijah says, okay. So Jesus knew this story and benign. By denying such permission from his would-be followers, he is saying, in effect, my work is even more important than Elijah's, and my calling is more urgent. That brings us back to our initial question. Who is Jesus? Some of the prophets, some of the disciples thought he was a prophet, like Elijah. And he was a prophet. But he was more than a prophet. He was the Jewish Messiah, God's anointed one. Did Jesus take on Elijah's mantle? He did take on a cloak, but it was not a symbol of the kind of power Elijah had. It was a symbol of a different kind of power. What is that different kind of power that Jesus took on when he took on a mantle? Well, recall with me how Mark describes the crucifixion. And they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. Have you ever wondered why the Gospels don't go into detail about the crucifixion? They didn't need to. Everybody in those days had seen one. Everyone knew it was a slave's death, a horrible, painful, disgraceful way to die. And Jesus chose to do it. He took on the mantle in the end. He took it on and died a slave's death. And that would have been that, except he didn't stay dead. The resurrection was God's amen to Jesus' way of love and humility, of faithfulness and obedience. And Jesus' way of love and humility still has the power to affirm human meaning and dignity. How many in our time, could use the reassurance that Howard Thurman's grandmother, born a slave, passed on to him, that he was a child of God, that he was loved by God. How many in our time don't believe they are worth anybody's love? How many don't experience basic human dignity? We have an opioid epidemic that is taking human lives. We have a teen suicide epidemic that is taking human lives. Both are public health crises that require government attention. But both are also spiritual crises about the loss of meaning, purpose, and hope for many in our society. What a difference it would make if the church could adequately share our faith that God loves everyone, that every human being has dignity. And whether we're conscious of it or not, our statement here every Sunday that we welcome everybody to this church embodies the ethic of love and humility of Jesus, and witnesses to the love of God for all people. I started this sermon with the question, who is Jesus? As Albert Schweitzer said, there could never be just one answer to that question. But one good answer is the one Dietrich Bonhoeffer came up with. Jesus is the man for others. He showed by word and deed the love of God to all people, He loved the unlovable, gave dignity to the disinherited, and showed us all a way to live, a way to be fully human, a way to live as God would have us live. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website, www.ucclittlecompton.org. And if you'd like to show some appreciation for what you've heard today, we invite you to please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support our ministry by clicking the donate link in the show notes. The tradition in our church is to end every service with this simple prayer. God be with you till we meet again. By God's counsels, God uphold you, with his sheep securely fold you. God be with you till we meet again. Go in peace.